Hello there. This is Pastor Spencer. Thank you for being with us and the story of the Old Testament as we are walking through the Old Testament scriptures together through the stories that make up the backbone and the the story of redemption uh, found from uh, the promise of God given in Genesis 3.15, which comes right after the fall of of mankind into sin, but all the way uh, through to showing us ultimately uh, pictures of our Savior and seeing God at work uh, in the Old Testament. So we're excited to do this again this week. This is week number four for the week of January 22nd, for the week of January 4 through 22nd through uh, the 28th. Uh, we are this reading this week reading Genesis 31 through 38, as well as Psalm 16 uh, through 20. <clears throat> so we are continuing the life of Jacob. We're seeing uh, how God is at work in this this scoundrel, uh, this uh, heel grabber, this man who lies and cheats, steals um, the blessing from his brother, and yet, amazingly, in God's grace, he's the one who's blessed and uh, watched over uh, by by God. And now, in this week, we're going to see Jacob flee and get away from his uncle Laban. He's kind of uh, gotten a piece, uh, a taste of his own medicine <clears throat> in the um, uh, in, in his interactions with his uncle Laban, who's also now his father-in-law, right? Because Jacob has married the two daughters of Laban, uh, uh, Leah and, and Rachel. And he has uh, also grown into a family uh, with these, these sons uh, who, will, who are forming the foundation of the nation of Israel, as uh, will be uh, coming into full-fledged as a nation eventually uh, into Exodus. So this week in 31, Jacob runs away um, from from uh, Laban. Uh, the Lord protects him. Eventually, then he has to go back, though, and face Esau. And you'll remember that we don't know. Um, Jacob had been told by his mother, uh, you know, whenever it's safe, basically, I'll send for you. Well, mom never sends for him. So Jacob's probably assuming it's not safe. Uh, so he comes back. Uh, but he's got to come back and face his brother. And we know that there's probably great nervousness and anxiety in his heart about showing back up and meeting his brother. But um, uh, the Lord uh, amazingly works it out to where uh, Esau does not hold the grudge anymore. And we see a wonderful reconciliation. But right before that, though, we see Jacob wrestling uh, with this with uh, this amazing individual who just wrestles with him um, in the middle of the night. And then the rest of the passage eventually uh, talks about the rest of the chapters here, I should say, continue to talk about Jacob's family, um, the, the, the trouble they're in. You see what they do with Jacob's uh, sons, how they go in and, uh, and uh, well, they, they cause a lot of trouble by basically executing a city uh, in Genesis 34 um, before eventually we start to see it transition into the life of Joseph and we see what happens with Joseph and he's sold into slavery. And so we're going to begin to see <clears throat> how Joseph's uh, life of, or Jacob's life of faith um, continues to get more difficult, even in his old age. It doesn't, it doesn't um, settle down, so to speak. We're going to see some of the greatest trials he goes through um, are the loss of, of a beloved son. And yet we see the wonderful uh, gift of grace that God works it out for good in the end. So let's begin reading through some of these things. 
<clears throat> think about these these scriptures as we're reading through them uh, this week. Uh, first of all, I want to read this from Genesis uh, 31. This is called Enemies at Peace. This is by Charles uh, Spurgeon, <clears throat> and he's quoting the the uh, passage here, Proverbs sixteen seven. When a man's ways please the Lord, he maketh even his enemies to be at peace with him. And here, Spurgeon is going to be applying that to uh, with um, uh, with uh, Laban, <clears throat> I believe. Um, well, actually, no. Yeah, Laban and also Esau. We're going to see eventually Esau will also be at peace with him. So let's read this first. He says, I must see that my ways please the Lord. Even then I shall have enemies, and perhaps all the more certainly, because I endeavor to do that which is right. But what a promise this is. The Lord will make the wrath of man to praise him and abate it so that it shall not distress me. He can constrain an enemy to desist from harming me, even though he has a mind to do so. This he did with Laban, who pursued Jacob, but did not dare to touch him. Or he can subdue the wrath of the enemy and make him friendly, as he did with Esau, who met Jacob in a brotherly manner. Though Jacob had dreaded that he would smite him and his family with the sword. The Lord can also convert a furious adversary into a brother in Christ and a fellow worker, as he did with Saul of Tarsus. Oh, that he would do this in every case where a persecuting spirit appears. Happy is the man whose enemies are made to be to him what the lions were to Daniel in the den, quiet and companionable. When I meet death, who is called the last enemy, I pray that I may be at peace. Only let my great care be to please the Lord in all things. Oh, for faith and holiness, for these are a pleasure unto the Most High. And that's what we see here. The Lord in his providence uh, protects Jacob amazingly. Uh, Jacob doesn't deserve it. And yet the Lord watches over him, cares for him to make Laban and Esau and uh, and others. You know, the, even, the, even the reaction, because I think Jacob would have been nervous, right? He was nervous about... Uh, whenever his sons in, Gen- in Genesis 34 execute that whole city, he's probably worried, oh no, there's going to be some revenge taken on me. But the Lord always protects his people. And he protected Jacob, even when Jacob and his family uh, didn't deserve it. But Jacob is able to escape from Laban in 31. And then he is afraid of Esau. And so Jacob again is trying to come up with a plan in order um to try to, he's trying to come up with a plan in order to appease Esau. And uh, so he's going to try to fix this himself. And he send, right, he splits up the, 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 all of his family. He splits up all those people who are with him. And, um, and he sleeps, Jacob does, by himself alone. And then we read in verse 24, And Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. Let's read this about Genesis 32. It says, the night we defeated God. I believe this is from Chad Bird. Um, he says, I want a ringside seat at this fight. So close I can feel the spray of their sweat. It's not every day you get to see man go toe-to-toe with God, fight it out, roll in the dirt, batter and bruise and body slam each other. But today's that day. Finally, we get to see what God is really made of. Finally, he leaves his throne for our gutter. This is the chance we've all been waiting for. Oh, yes, I've got a dog in this fight. His name's Jacob. He's not my first choice. I don't care for Jacob. Never have. He's got too much of me in him. He's a liar and a cheat. He's a coward and a user. 
All the men in the world who would who could have been the patriarch of the Old Testament church and this loser winds up on top. Married to two gals with a couple more co-wives on the side, he employs as baby makers. His family's so fractured, it's the stuff of reality TV. On the outs with his twin brother for years. Here's a man who seems to embody all my own sins. Not exactly hero material. But beggars can't be choosers. That God ever agreed to this fight seems the height of foolishness to me. Why come down from heaven? Why meet Jacob under cover of darkness on the banks of this river and wrestle with him through the small hours of the night? It's not like he had to. He takes it upon himself. He shows up, dressed in our skin, and picks a fight with the patriarch. You've got to wonder, does he have something up his sleeve? I love the raw fury of the fight. I've poured everything I am into that man, Jacob. All my own lying and cheating and cowardice. All my own anger and frustration and fears. All the fractures of my family. All my loneliness and hatred of life and feelings of worthlessness. All the stuff about me that I hate. It's all in Jacob now. I am him and he is me. And miracles of miracles were winning. Even when God pulls a sucker punch and dislocates Jacob's hip, even then we won't let go. Not yet. Not after all this. God's not, simply to, not, God's not going to simply disappear back into his celestial mansion. No, I will not let you go unless you bless me. You tell him, Jacob, I don't care if the sun is peeking over the horizon. This fight's not over. What's your name? God asks. What a question. What is my name? My name is Jacob. And my name is Chad and Kim and Judas and Jezebel. But I also go by doubter and killer and Pharisee and fool. Some call me merely X. Some call me adulterer. Still others call me names best left to the imagination. They're all true. And to that cocktail, we can now add even more. For look at me, all covered in grime and blood and spit and sweat. I fought with God. I fought with faith, but also infidelity. I see it now. I see what I am. I've held the Almighty down. I've lashed out at him with all the muscle of meanness that skulks down the dark corridors of my soul. This has had nothing to do with an athletic competition. This has been sinner against Savior. This has been me in all my selfish nastiness, lashing out at my Creator. And He's let me. He's let me hold Him down, press His face in the dirt of His creation. What is my name? Who am I? I am lying, cheating, running away, deceiving, supplanting Jacob. That's who I am. That's all of who I am. And that's all I'll ever be. At least that's what I assumed. And then, lo and behold, he goes and blows my mind. Your name shall no longer be Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. We have prevailed? Yes. Against God? Yes. You mean to tell me that we have fought, God, fought against God and won? Yes, precisely. This is the night we have defeated God. This is the night of the fight that God lost in order that we might win. And in his loss, which is our victory, he gives us a new name. We are no longer Jacob. We are Israel, he who strives with God. This is the game changer that's a name changer. And who could have seen it coming? For this is more than a night on the banks of the Jabbok River. This is the night wed to the darkness that brooded from noon till three on the day we finally defeated God for good. We wrestle him down in the mire of Jerusalem mud and pin him to the execution tree with flesh-piercing iron. 
We who grabbed our brother's heel on the way out of the womb, grabbed the heel of our brother and raised the hammer high. Sinners against the Savior, men against God, Jacob against Jesus, all of us against all of him. And we defeat God. Oh, the depths of the wise foolishness of the Lord, who lets us have our way with him. There is no God like you. Search, if you will, the highways and byways of every religion of the world and report back to me which of them has a God who loves his people so much he loses to them that they might win in him. There is no God like the God of the Friday we call good. Wrestling Friday. Fighting Friday. The Friday that God shows us what he's really made of. Fathomless mercy and limitless love. That little enigmatic story Moses tucked into Genesis 32 is the gospel that shatters all expectations. A God who comes to man as a man. A sinner who fights with the Savior. A God who wills himself to be bested by a creature. A creature who is renamed, reblessed, redeemed in the victorious defeat of the God who is love. If you wish to know the depths of the mercy of our God, look no further than this fight. Here is a God who gives up everything to give us everything. Here is the God who loses all that we might gain all. Here is the Lord who has nothing up his sleeve but a heart that pulses with blood that is willing to be shed for those he calls his brothers. In him we see God face to face, and from that face beams brightly the light of salvation that shines on the night we defeated the God who wins us by losing. What a wonderful story that is, uh, Genesis 32. <clears throat> and uh, um, that's the title of Chad Bird's book on Jacob. Called, it's, it's called Limping with God, and it's a very good book. Um, but that's exactly what happened, right? Jacob, for the rest of his life, walked with a limp, and he was always remembering this angel, this man, this God-man that he wrestled with uh, in, in Genesis 32. Well, after that, Jacob continues in his life. He meets Esau. They're reconciled. Um, and then eventually, uh, in Genesis 34, we see the defiling of Jacob's daughter, Dinah, uh, but also the revenge that his sons take on those who did this. And uh, then we see in Genesis chapter 35 uh, that God comes to Jacob and blesses him and, uh, and uh, again renames him. And, and gives him, well, reminds him of all of these, these wonderful promises. This is taken from Alistair Begg, and it's from Genesis chapter 35. It's based off verse 11, where God uh, says to Jacob, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. This is Alistair Begg on this verse. The book of Judges tells the story of the Israelites in the promised land after their death of their leader, Joshua. It's a depressing story because the people very quickly rebelled, beginning a cycle that repeats itself throughout the book. First, the people sinned. Second, God allowed them to be defeated and oppressed. Third, they cried for help. And fourth, God intervened by raising up a judge or leader to defeat Israel's enemies and restore peace to the land. But peace never lasted for long before the sequence was repeated. Throughout the period of the judges, Israel was collapsing religiously, socially, morally, and economically. In response, the people started to think that life would be a lot better if only a king were appointed, as God had declared to Jacob one would be. Yet, seeking to be like the nations around them, they rejected God's kingship, the very thing that made them unique. 
They wanted a monarchy instead of a theocracy, and rather than looking for a king who would govern under God and lead them in obedience to his rule, they were looking for a king who would rule instead of him. Remarkably, despite the sinfulness of the Israelites' motivations, God fulfilled their request. Many kings of Israel followed, but never the king they truly needed. There was still someone greater to come. In a way that only he could orchestrate, God used the people's short-sighted demand for a king like those of other nations to fulfill his ultimate purpose for a king who would one day rule those nations. Eventually, Israel's royal line would culminate in Jesus, the coming king whom God had promised, one whose scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. The true kingdom would be established by the Messiah, who would rule under God's authority and would be his supreme gift to an unworthy people. See how immense God is, that he is able to sweep into his purposes even foolish requests and bad motivations. God is bigger than our choices and even our mistakes. He is sovereign over every misstep. Though we, like Israel, may fail at times, we can surely trust God to overcome our failings as he accomplishes his purposes. And we can gladly obey his king in our lives today rather than seeking to serve anyone or anything in his stead. So there we have it. Jacob is promised a line of kings. And this line of kings had been first promised to Abraham in Genesis chapter 17, um, where we see a, pro- a line of kings that says is going to come from Abraham. And and so really what God has been tracing here in Genesis, you'll notice there's a, a line of individuals that are traced from uh, from Adam's line, and then through Noah, and then through Shem, and all the way to Abraham, and then it includes Isaac, not Ishmael, then it includes Jacob, not Esau. This is a royal line, a royal family line, and that we're going to see eventually in Genesis goes to Judah, the son of Jacob. It does not go to Joseph as as much of a type of Christ as Joseph is, and we will talk about that. Uh, the the line, the royal line, runs through Judah, and this is also why eventually in Matthew chapter one, and uh, that we see uh, Matthew going through this royal family line. Jesus is the son of Abraham, the son of David. So he's tracing this royal family tree that culminates in the King Jesus Christ. And really, the whole Old Testament, that is the backbone, so to speak, because all of the covenants, the covenants of God, are really found, are really formed uh, with this royal line, in a sense, right? They're made to the promise of the woman, but then eventually with Noah, then with Abraham, reaffirmed to Isaac and Jacob, and then, of course, the Mosaic covenant, which is given to the whole nation, but Jesus is also the true Israelite uh, who fulfills the law, and then later again, that royal covenant again with David, uh, the son, descendant from Judah, and, and such. So, this promise given to Jacob in Genesis chapter 35 is going to seek to, is going to continue to be fulfilled as you read the Old Testament scriptures keep your eye on this promise of a king to come this had always been the hope of God's people they were looking for a king someone who would crush the the head of the serpent and we know that that one has come in Jesus Christ well Genesis chapter 36 is another uh uh, listing of generations of Esau, where we now go through the rejected son of 
Jacob, Esau, and we see his family line. But then eventually we get into chapter 37. And let's read this real quick at the very beginning, these opening verses. It says, Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age, and he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. So we see here what is going to happen, and this is kind of setting a bad omen, right? This kind of kind of uh, foreshadowing to us uh, the trouble that is going to be brewing in the family of Jacob. Uh, Jacob is showing great favoritism to one son because he is the son of jo- of of Rachel, and so he's showing great love and favoritism and preference to Joseph. And this, of course, is stirring up the dark clouds that are going to begin going through and over Jacob's family for a very long time, actually, till eventually it dissipates. And what they meant for good in these dark clouds are going to show forth the son of God's grace. But this is called The Folly of Favoritism, Genesis 37. This is by Alistair Begg as we think about this favoritism of Jacob. It says, favoritism in relationships is folly. We see this throughout the story of God's people in the Old Testament, but it is perhaps writ largest in the life of Joseph, for he was the object of his father Jacob's special interest. Joseph was the son of Jacob's old age and of his great lifetime love, Rachel. So Jacob, whom God had renamed Israel, loved this son more than the others. From this root of partiality sprang much bad fruit in this family. Jacob expressed his favoritism through a gift a robe of many colors, which he himself had made. It was clearly a token of favoritism, one that Joseph obviously enjoyed wearing. This controversial coat provoked intense hostility from Joseph's brothers. From their hostility sprang malice and murderous intent. They eventually went as far as selling their own brother into slavery and faking his death. If the gift of a coat could incite such a response, then surely the problem was far greater than the coat itself. There must have been deep-seated sin behind the scenes, and that's exactly what we find with Joseph's brothers. Their issue was not so much that the coat was very valuable. It was that it set Joseph in a different class from them. In giving him this gift, Jacob had elevated Joseph above his siblings, and this gnawed away at them. The choice of a favorite always necessitates the implicit choice of a non-favorite, which is a trigger for both arrogance and pride in the one chosen as the favorite, and for resentment and bitterness in those who are not. You may have seen around you, or even in your own life, the corrosive effects of either being a favorite or being passed over for that status. Jacob should have known better for himself had been the ob- Jacob should have known better, for he himself had been the object of undue favoritism. His own mother had preferred him over his brother Esau, and it had led to chaos. His relationship with Esau, like Joseph's with his brothers, was damaged for years. Let us not be too quick, though, to distance ourselves from the mindset and actions of Jacob or of his sons, as if we could never be guilty of something similar. We must all beware 
the folly of favoritism in relationships, and the fury which so often accompanies it. Partiality is a common and understandable error, but it casts deep, dark, destructive shadows. Rather than simply shake our heads at Jacob's foolishness, let's learn from it. Every relationship is a unique gift from God. To the degree that we show favoritism to those around us, for whatever reason it might be, we can be assured that it will fracture and devastate relationships. If, however, we cherish each friend, family member, and neighbor with obvious love and affection, we honor God and encourage the hearts of those he has placed around us. And that's really true, isn't it? I mean, we can think about favoritism in family life, but also favoritism in church life or in social life and any number of things. We've got to be careful about that because we see the sin that really festered in the family of Jacob and, and the fruit that it bore in the lives of, of these people. Well, I think this might be the last, let me check here. Next to last thing, yeah, I've got to read here to you. This is Genesis 37 again. As we think further about Joseph being sold into slavery and all of this stuff starting to happen to him, this is called Genesis 37. This is when your own family betrays you. This is, uh, again, I believe from Chad Bird. He says, when your life has come to a disastrous halt, part of you feels mocked by a world that keeps on moving. You're sitting alone at home, grieving the loss of someone you love, while down the street a family parties it up on their daughter's wedding day. While you're getting ready for yet another dead-end job interview, your neighbors get in their cars and drive to work every morning. And as irrational as it seems, you can't help but think, don't they know, don't they care what I'm going through? In such times of darkness, even the sunrise seems a slap in the face. Give me a night or an eclipse or at least a cloudy day. How can the planet keep on spinning when my life has slammed into a brick wall? That's bad enough. What's worse is when people kick us where it hurts, grind our face in the dirt, and go on with their lives as if they've done nothing wrong while we're left writhing in our own blood. The happier and more successful they become, the more the knife twists that they've planted in our backs. It happens all the time in divorces. It happens at school. It happens in the workplace and, yes, in the church. And deeper are the wounds when they're inflicted by those we trusted, even loved, and whom we thought loved us. Joseph could tell you all about this. His father had sent him to check on his brothers and the flocks they were shepherding, but inside the hearts of these brother shepherds, the wolf of jealousy howled and growled. Joseph, our father's pet, Joseph and his coat of many colors, Joseph and his despicable dreams of all of us one day bowing down to him. Let's give this dreamer a taste of reality. So there lay Joseph naked, bruised, crying for mercy, at the bottom of the pit into which his own family had tossed him like a piece of garbage. And what did the brothers do? They sat down to a meal. While the echoes of their brothers' cries from within the earth sounded forth? Yes. While their own flesh and blood lay bleeding in the bottom of a pit? Yes. For Joseph, it was like a twisted version of Psalm 23, in which thou dost prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. But it was my enemies who ate, indeed who devoured my life, while I tasted only tears. This teenager, beloved of his father, chosen by God, on that day learned in the school of suffering just how callous people can be, including members of our own family. What Joseph did not know, what he could not have known at the time, was that this was merely the beginning of the strange work of God in his life. 
From this time forward, and for many years to come, all evidence would point to the fact that the Lord had abandoned Joseph. Being thrown in the pit was but one of the many smoking guns that the prosecutor could bring forth as evidence in the court of Joseph's heart that God was no longer active in his life, no longer loved him, no longer was with him, no longer cared one iota for him. We've all had our Joseph-like days or months or even years. Some of you reading this are going through it right now. While you're in a sleep in a deep, dark pit, the world above you goes on in its merry way, enjoys its meals, has its parties, maybe even mocks your sufferings or says that you're getting what you deserve. Not only do you feel the absence of God, it may seem to you that heaven has become your enemy. As odd as this may sound, the one that you think has become your enemy is the only one in creation who knows perfectly how you feel. Because the very God you think has forsaken you is the person who once felt forsaken by God. When Jesus, the Son of the Father, was in the deepest, darkest throes of his own suffering, he gave voice to the ultimate cry of the human heart. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. Psalm 22, 1-2 Like Joseph lay in the pit while his brothers ate their meal, like you're in your own pit while the world goes on as if nothing happened, so Jesus hung on his cross while the soldiers gambled beneath him. His closest friends fled in fear, his enemies mocked him, and his heavenly Father forsook him. The Son of God dove headfirst into the pit of human suffering, lay bloody and bruised with us as we hit bo- as we hit bottom, and joins his voice of lament to ours as we bewail our grief and loss. But you do not only have a God who can sympathize with you, who is bound up with you in the midst of your sufferings. You have the same God as Joseph, the God who will lift you out of the pit, out of the prison, out of the gutter. He is the one who wiped the graveyard dust from his feet on a Sunday morning, who made that evidence of mortality the smoking gun of death's demise. You have a resurrection God, who will not rest until you rest in life and hope once more. He raised Joseph from the pit, from the Egyptian jail, to newness of life. He raised Jacob from the sorrow of Sheol to joy in life once more when he he was told Joseph was alive in Egypt. He He is a Good Friday God to be sure, a God whose strange work involves putting to death that in us which is contrary to him. But he's also an Easter God, whose loving work is sustaining us, healing us, raising us up. The life of Joseph is understood only within the life of Jesus, and your life is no different. Joseph and you and me were all part of a larger story, the story of the God who became one of us, who became intimately acquainted with our griefs and sorrows and losses, redeemed us to be his own by the most cruel death imaginable, then raised up on the third day to a life that will not and cannot end. Our lives, full of ups and downs, gains and losses, births and funerals, are hidden within the life of Christ, who suffers with us, rises with us, and goes to hell and back to make sure we make it to heaven with him. Well, that's great stuff, isn't it? Uh, Joseph here is going to, as we know, be raised out of the pit, sold to slavery. And then we see in chapter 38, Judah. It's a fascinating switch, um, which we won't talk about really much today, but I want you to think about this question. Why does the author, why does Moses turn our attention to Judah in chapter 38 before going right back to Joseph? He begins with Joseph in 37. 
then goes back to Joseph in 39. But why this little detour to Judah of all people in chapter 38? And part of that is because I think, and I've, uh, Judah is a very unlikely redeemer, but that is exactly what he will turn out to be uh, by, by the end. Judah is willing, as we will see later, to give his life for someone else. And Judah here seems very unlikely to do so because he's a very unrighteous man. And yet the Lord takes Judah and from Judah will, be, uh, will come our Savior, Jesus Christ. So well, I want to, we're going to close with uh, another one of those songs that I've tried to incorporate into our um, time here on this podcast uh, from the, the couple, poor Bishop Hooper. That's a couple, uh, a man and his wife. I forget their names. Uh, I had it in the other one, but um, uh, they've got a whole thing on the Psalms, also all 150 Psalms. So we're going to do Psalm 16 today uh, and listen to that as I hope it's uh, helpful to you. Uh, as we think about singing the Psalms and thinking about their role in our Christian lives, we're explicitly told to sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Um, and as believers, the book of Psalms, historically in the Christian church, has had a very, very significant place in uh, the praise and prayer life of God's people. In fact, they were sung in congregations in the past at a much, uh, much more prevalent than they are today. So, Psalm 16, we'll do that. Uh, but right before that, I want to read this this section uh, by Charles Spurgeon, because Psalm 16 has to do with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Psalm 16, verse 10 says, For thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. So we'll read this by Spurgeon, and then we will listen. Uh, I'll close and uh, let you uh, hear out uh, this, this song. So this real quick is about Psalm 16. This word has its proper fulfillment in the Lord Jesus, but it applies also with a variation to all who are in him. Our soul shall not be left in the separate state, and our body, though it see corruption, shall rise again. The general meaning, rather than the specific application, is that to which we would call our reader's thoughts at this particular time. We may descend in spirit very low till we seem to be plunged in the abyss of hell, but we shall not be left there. We may appear to be at death's door in heart and soul and consciousness, but we cannot remain there. Our inward death as to joy and hope may proceed very far, but it cannot run on to its full consequences so as to reach the utter corruption of black despair. We may go very low, but not lower than the Lord permits. We may stay in the lowest dungeon of doubt for a while, but we shall not perish there. The star of hope is still in the sky when the night is blackest. The Lord will not forget us and hand us over to the enemy. Let us rest in hope. We have to deal with one whose mercy endureth forever. Surely out of death and darkness and despair, we shall yet arise to life, light, and liberty. Well, thank you for listening to this. We're going to wrap up now with uh, Psalm 16 by poor Bishop Hooper. I hope this is helpful to you as we think about these, these scriptures. And I, uh, I look forward to being with you uh, next week. Take care and God bless. I say to the Lord, you are my master. Every good thing I have comes from you, comes from you.